Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We are in John 13. All of the babies are excited. Praise God for the sound of youth in our church. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it and study it within the pages of Scripture, you will find the words of life. I've got two points for you this morning. Let's just jump right in with point number one, the betrayal. This morning's text opens up with something of a mystery, a real Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, knives out sort of who done it mystery except within this morning's text the mystery is less of a who done it and more of a who will do it the theme of this morning's mystery is betrayal and in this morning's text Jesus for the last time will tell his disciples that one of them will betray him well let's read it for ourselves starting in chapter 13 verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag that Judas was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. So as we open up in verse 21, we see John telling the reader that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because this is the third time so far in John's gospel that we've heard that Jesus is troubled in his spirit. This is pretty loaded language. And the two other times that we find this in in John chapter 11, verse 33, and John chapter 12, verse 27, both of the other instances are in connection to death. And... The pattern seems to hold true here in chapter 13 as well. Jesus is troubled in his spirit here because he knows that his death is near. Jesus knows that as Judas steps out from the meal to go and betray him, that this will set in motion the events that lead ultimately to his death on the cross and his taking on the wrath of God on his shoulders. Now, after Jesus tells the disciples that one of them will betray him, 
the disciples, they begin to do probably exactly what you would do in a situation like that. You're sitting around the table, you're just eating some lamb, got some bread, enjoying yourself, and Jesus kind of kills the, the buzz of the, the party a little bit, says, one of you is going to betray me. Well, what would you do? You'd probably start looking around the room. You'd probably start evaluating who's been acting funny. You'd be trying to sniff out who the, the traitor could be. This is as if you were on an FBI task force and the director of the task force comes out and tells you, hey, we have a mole on the team. Everyone would begin to wonder who could this traitor be. Now, eventually, the disciples are going to find out that Judas is the betrayer. You're going to see that as we continue to work through the Gospel of John. And it's not really a surprise to us because if we've been reading John's Gospel carefully, we see that John has been cluing us into Judas's deceit all throughout the Gospel. But what is very interesting here at this point in the story is that as the disciples are reclining at the table with Judas, no one really seems to suspect him. He doesn't seem to stand out amongst the rest of the disciples as the most probable suspect, the one who will almost certainly betray Jesus. What we see is that Judas just seems to be one of the twelve. As a matter of fact, he seems to be one of the more trusted member of the twelve. How do we know that? Well, because the text tells us that he holds the money bag. And you don't let an untrusted member of the group hold the money bag. I'm thinking about who in this room would I not trust to hold the money bag, right? Well, Judas is trustworthy, at least in the eyes of the rest of the disciples. He's the one who keeps the cash. This should lead us to contemplate the nature of betrayal. You see, friends, sometimes betrayal is obvious. Sometimes betrayal is expected. You know, you... You see someone heading down a path and you're not surprised at all when they end up at the destination to which the path is leading them, right? Sometimes when you're thinking about someone and, 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 and their relationship with the Lord, you can just feel something in your spirit, like something's not right here. It's almost coming off of you in waves that you don't belong to Jesus, but rather that you belong to the world. And so when they eventually say, hey, I, I actually don't belong to Jesus, or they begin to live in such a way that says, I don't belong to Jesus, you're not really that caught off guard by it. You've kind of already been cued in. But there are other times where we can be completely caught off guard by the treachery of so-called disciples of Jesus. I think about Jude 1 here. Jude 1 speaks of these men who creep into the church unnoticed. Well, how are they unnoticed? Why doesn't anyone notice them and their creeping? He says that they were long ago designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God. <laughs> these, these guys, when they show up at the church, they don't show up waving a banner that says, destined for condemnation. No, they look like everyone else in the room. They, they act like they're on the team. In the case that Judas is speaking about in particular, these betrayers come speaking gospel language. They use gospel words. The only way that you can come and pervert the grace of our God is if you come in the name of the grace of our God. Or consider the language of Galatians 2.4. It says that these False brothers had come in under false pretenses in order to enslave us. 
Friends, this is what betrayal can look like in the church. You should have this as a category. False brothers creeping in under false pretenses. I'm not trying to create in you a kind of rabid suspicion that anybody who doesn't agree with you on every jot and tittle of the Bible, you, oh, we got a deceiver here, you know, I see you trying to creep in. That's not what I'm trying to create. I just want the category of like, you can be really surprised. And by the way, if you suspect them that they are the betrayers, they probably won't be the betrayers. That may be too strong, but you get what I'm trying to say. The betrayer will never uh, announce his evil intentions. He will be from among us. He will look like us and talk like us and rise up from within our own ranks. So when this kind of thing happens, we'll, we'll obviously be shocked, we'll be saddened, but there's a sense in which I don't think we should be taken off guard. Let me show you what I mean. Go back and look at verse 19 of chapter 13. Look at verse 19. And I guess... Okay, verse 19. Speaking of this betrayal from Judas, Jesus says, I am telling you, the disciples, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So this is fascinating. Jesus tells his disciples about the betrayal in advance, but that's not all he's doing here. He also tells them, why he's telling them about the betrayal in advance. He says, I'm telling you about this in advance so that when the betrayal happens, you won't be overly discouraged. You won't be thrown off your game. You won't be thrown off your P's and Q's, but rather you'll be strengthened in your faith because I told you that it was going to happen like this. Doesn't this make sense? Isn't this something that a good leader would do like Jesus If the most trustworthy guy in the group betrays the group and the master of the group, it could very obviously be discouraging to the group. Unless, unless the master of the group tells you about the duplicity of someone in the group in advance. And then when the duplicity takes place, you'll remember the words of your master. And rather than being overly discouraged, You'll be strengthened in your faith. You'll say, this hurts, I'm shocked, I'm sad, but it happened exactly like my master said it would. How does this apply to us? Well, one of the things that you'll probably hear me from the pulpit, but just other elders or maybe even church members say on a regular basis, is that not every member, even of our church, is a true disciple of Jesus. That shouldn't be a surprise to you. It shouldn't be shocking to say that not every person who professes to belong to Jesus and who joins the church actually belongs to Jesus. If you're here and you're not accustomed to hearing this kind of language, this kind of talk, you you might wonder why we would make it a point of saying something like that so specifically and explicitly. Well, because of this right here, because of what we're seeing in, in John chapter 13, When it comes to pass that a church member denies Jesus, when it comes to pass that a church member betrays their Lord and Master, and it will happen, 
It will happen. If you're a member of this church, one of the things that I do whenever I talk to people and, I'm, and they're trying to tell me about their church and I want to know if they have a healthy church, I'll just say, when was the last time your church carried out church discipline? And if they've been there for like 10 years and they've not heard of a single case, I'm just like, this is not good. You're telling me you have 500 people in your church and not one of them has betrayed their master and Lord? Jesus had 12 disciples and two betrayers. We're going to talk about the second betrayer in a minute. When this happens in our church, when someone with either their life or doctrine betrays Jesus, we should be sad, we should be, it's going to be tough, but we should not be overly discouraged because we shouldn't be caught off guard. So when it happens, I just want you to remember, for example, the example of Judas in John 13, that not all of Jesus' own disciples, handpicked by Jesus, were actually true followers of Jesus. I want you to remember Romans 9, 6. In, in Romans 9, Paul is addressing this question of whether or not God's promises have failed because Israel, so on and so forth. But here, here's the answer that he gives. He says, no, it's not as if the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended of Israel belong to Israel. I want you to remember 1 John 2, 19, where the same guy who wrote this morning's gospel wrote this letter and it says this, they went out from us, that is these professing believers, and, and even in this case, specifically ministers of the gospel, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's going to happen at Sixth Avenue. Somebody's going to go out to demonstrate the fact that they were never really in. I want you, if this happens in our midst, to remember what Paul promised what happened to the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, verse 30, we read, Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. And I could just go on and on. These examples could be multiplied. When a sheep leaves the flock, when a shepherd falls into sin, when a Christian leader is scandalized in the public eye, as it seems to be happening like once a week these days, do not be overly discouraged. Remember what Jesus has told us in his word. This sort of thing will happen. Okay, so now as we move deeper into the text, we see that uh, Peter, when he hears that there's a betrayer in their midst, he can't help himself, right? He wants to know who is this guy, who is the betrayer, but it seems like he's, he's too sheepish to ask Jesus directly. So the text says that he asks the disciple whom Jesus loves, and this is almost certainly John, the same guy who wrote this gospel. I could spend 10 minutes trying to prove that to you, or you could just kind of go study that on your own this afternoon if you doubt me. But it's, it's almost certainly John, his beloved disciple. And so Peter asks John to ask Jesus, right? Kind of like you ask my mom if you can spend the night, because if I ask her, she'll say no, that kind of a thing. Am I the only one? Okay. Who did that? Will, you told me that it was unnecessary, and you were right, brother. Thanks, man. I'll never doubt you again. <laughs> so John asked Jesus, 
you know, who, who is it? And Jesus says, well, it's the one to whom I'm going to give this morsel. And then Jesus hands the morsel to Judas. And so now it would seem that at least Peter and John know the truth about Judas. And I can't help but wonder here how, how Peter probably felt in this moment in his heart in light of this knowledge. I mean, knowing Peter as well as we do, I would bet my house that he probably feels all kinds of unrighteous feelings, a, a kind of surge of pride, perhaps a, a self-righteous indignation. How dare you? This is the guy who pulls out the sword, right? Like nobody's going to take my master, right? How, how dare you, Judas, betray our Lord and master? And yet we know for a fact that Judas, excuse me, that Peter, like Judas, will betray his master within the next 24 hours. He won't betray Jesus for money, but rather he'll betray him for his own personal safety. You can read about it. Let's go to verses 36 through 38. This is after Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to go into glory. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Not now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is fascinating. Somewhere in the meal, Peter finds out that Judas is the betrayer. But before the meal is over, he finds out that he himself will join Judas in his betrayal as he denies Jesus for the sake of his own safety. This is so typical of Peter. Peter's like, Lord, I will die for you. What are you talking about? Wherever you're going, I'm going. And Jesus is like, with, I mean, just thick irony, right? Like, hey, hey Peter, I know you think you're going to die for me, buddy, but it's actually the exact opposite, right? Because we know what happens with Peter. He goes into the courtyard and he has the very real possibility, the very real option of dying for his master. But he doesn't. He responds in cowardice. One commentator speaking of, of Peter's zeal to, to, to risk his life for Jesus, he says that it's, it's easy to believe deeply in our good intentions when we're sitting in a, a warm, safe room after a nice big meal. But the ability to follow through on those good intentions in a cold, dark courtyard surrounded by a hostile mob well, that's another thing entirely. Consider these words from God in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, and how they might apply here. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Uh, excuse me, not why. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then the second portion of the advice here is, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Right? So maybe it comes to pass that, that one day in the church a case of discipline comes before us in a members meeting and you're tempted to feel perhaps the same kind of self-righteousness that Peter might have felt in this moment. 
you have to slay that feeling of self-righteousness instantly. Instantly. You have to put that to death. You have to remember that you are human just like they are. You have to remember that you are not above temptation. Rather than focusing and fixating on them and their sin struggles, you must keep a watch on yourself and remember that what they're going through is not uncommon at all and that you could fall in the same kind of sin tomorrow and you probably would were it not for God's grace. I remember being a young Christian. You've heard my testimony really, you know, just immediate boom, the power of God and it changed my life completely. No more drugs, no more women, no more this, that, and the third. And I remember when other men would confess their sins to me, particularly sins in relation to lust, I would just, I would just dog them out, you know. They would say, oh man, I'm really struggling. This girl's wearing this sweater and, uh, it's, and I would just be like, oh, how could you, you know. How dare you? Do you know that Jesus died for that sin? And then, God forbid, they confess like an addiction to pornography. I, how could you ever do that to your master and Lord? I remember doing that to a brother. And within a year, I found myself addicted to pornography. Friends, I want us to understand that every single one of us is in some sense not only in danger of becoming a traitor, but we have already in many ways betrayed our master and Lord. We all deny Jesus, if not as outwardly as we may understand the denial to be, inwardly in our hearts. We all trade him for the treasures of this world, money, personal safety. In our context, this is the big one, popularity. How many times have you failed to share the gospel on your job or in a social context just because you were worried that it would make the room just a little awkward. I would never deny you, Lord. I'd die for you. Man, it's so easy to say that sitting here in this room, had a good breakfast, surrounded by friends, comfortable clothes. But you're in the break room with your coworkers and you have the perfect gospel opportunity and you don't say anything. Your life's not in danger. Your career's not in danger. It's just a little bit of interpersonal discomfort that you don't want to feel. And so you don't say anything. Friends, we must keep a close watch on ourselves. The question isn't, will I betray Jesus? The question is, will I betray Jesus like Judas or like Peter? What's the difference between Judas and Peter? The only difference is that Peter repented. By God's grace, Peter repented. This story of Judas and Peter and their betrayals and denials, this is not like an old Western with the story of the black hat and the white hat, the the good guys and the bad guys. We're all bad guys. Judas is a bad guy. Peter is a bad guy. I'm a bad guy. You're a bad guy. We're all sinners. We all deserve wrath. What is the difference? Why does Peter get to go on and and write books in the New Testament and, and preach the gospel and continue to serve and bear good fruit? Because of repentance. You know, the story of the whole world is encapsulated here. The story of the world is not the story of good people versus bad people. We are all bad people. We are all unrighteous, all in our rebellion. There is no one righteous. No, not one Mother Teresa, 
This is the scandal. Isn't this, isn't this a scandal of the gospel? You know, Jeffrey Dahmer, which is the, you know, the, the big Netflix series, he professed faith in Jesus Christ before he died, and he professed repentance. And I don't know, in heaven, I'll be really interested to find out what happened there, if it was genuine or not. But the scandal of the gospel says that a Mother Teresa may not go to heaven, but a Jeffrey Dahmer may, if Jeffrey Dahmer actually repented of his sins and believed the gospel. Whereas Mother Teresa may have dedicated her life to serving poor and needy people, but if she never truly understood the gospel, she may never be saved. So the question for you this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is will you turn from your high treason? Will you turn from your betrayal of the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who sent his son to save you? Will you stop denying him and receive him by grace, will you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus? Repentance could be the difference for you. And it's not a minor difference. It's an eternal difference. There was a, an English reformer in the 1500s by the name of Thomas Cranmer. He became the first archbishop of England in the new Protestant church established by King Henry VIII. And if you're falling asleep, don't worry. That's all I have to say about history. Get on with it. King Henry, blah, blah, blah. Here's what you need to know about Cranmer. He, he was instrumental in helping England transition away from the false gospel of Roman Catholicism and into the one true gospel of justification by faith alone. And, and his work, I mean, the task that he had to carry out there was, it was Herculean. It was nigh impossible. And on several occasions, Cranmer barely escaped with his life. Well, then finally, uh, Bloody Mary came to the throne, as she came to be called, Bloody Mary, and she began to persecute all the Protestants, and she tried to drive the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone and the five solos of the, of the Reformation out of England, and she did that in part by arresting Thomas Cranmer, and she jailed him, she put him in the tower, she fined him, and then she spent three years sending Roman Catholic apologists up to the tower to argue with him. And finally, after three years of suffering and torture and psychological and spiritual pressure, Thomas Cranmer finally surrendered. He signed six recantations, the last of which was essentially a recantation of the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. He denied the gospel. He betrayed his master and Lord. You would think that this would spare his life. It didn't. Cranmer was still such a symbol of the Reformation in England that it was decided by Bloody Mary that he should still be burned as an example to the masses. We don't even want to get close to this Protestant stuff. And so they took Cranmer to the stake. The audience grew around him as he was being tied to the bundles of wood. And as he stood there, preparing to be burned alive, he told everyone who was gathered before him, that he was recanting his recantations. And then he held up his right hand and he said, this hand that signed the recantations is the hand that I want to be first burned in the fire forever signing away the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the first hand to be burned. Did he betray Jesus? Yes. 
but he also repented. Was it last minute repentance? Yes, it was, but that's not the point. It was genuine repentance. He saw eternity looming before him. Death brought things into pristine clarity for him. And by God's grace, he turned from his sin. I wonder about you this morning. I wonder if you're sitting here thinking that you perhaps have done too much. You've sinned too severely. You're too far gone from home. You can't come back to Jesus. You're too far gone. Friends, there is no such thing. That's, That's not a category you should have in your mind. You can never be too far gone to come back home to Jesus. As long as you're breathing, the gospel call is still going out to you. God is now calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins and trust in his son and his perfect work on the cross and to come home to dad. So I'm just blown away that if you're here and you're not a believer, that you're here and you're not a believer. Why are you here? Friend, I think it's because God wanted you to hear this call to repentance today. What we see in Cranmer is a recapitulation, that is, doing the kind of same thing again in history. We see a recapitulation of Peter's denial and betrayer, betrayal. We see a recapitulation of every betrayal, of Adam's betrayal. But betrayal does not have to be the last word. Okay, now let's go back to Judas. In verse 27, we read that Satan entered into Judas. Let's, let's just go back and look at verse 27 again so it's fresh in our minds. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Uh, my point here. This is just going to be a, I don't want to say it's, it's not a throwaway application point, but it's a, it's a little, little bit of a rabbit trail. But while we're here, I don't get a chance to talk about demonic possession often. So I just want to address it quickly. In light of verse 27, I want you to go back and read verse 11. For he knew, this is Jesus, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus was saying, this is after the foot washing, and remember in the waters of the foot washing, it was supposed to symbolize being cleansed from sin, and Peter's like, if, that's what, if, if it's being cleansed from sin, then cleanse my whole body, Lord, and Jesus is like, oh, you're already made clean, right? This is the language of rebirth and regeneration. Jesus is saying, Peter, you've already been made clean by me and my word. You don't need to be made clean again, but then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, but not all of you have been made clean. The one who hasn't been made clean is Judas. So then back to verse 27. The reason why Satan can enter into Judas is because Judas is unclean. It's because he is unregenerate. It's because he has not been reborn. So I I just, one of the questions that I probably get like maybe once a year from a church member is like, hey, do you think Christians can be possessed? You know, a new a new exorcism movie will come out or something, or a new report about the Roman Catholic Church and their ongoing exorcism ministry, and that'll lead someone to ask me. My answer is emphatically no. I do not think that if the Spirit of God is living in you, that the Spirit of Satan can also live in you, or the Spirit of a demon can live in you. When light enters into the darkness, the darkness disappears. The light cannot be overcome. 
It is impossible for the Holy Spirit to make his abode in your heart and then to make room for Satan in that self-same heart. So can you be demonically possessed if you belong to Jesus? The answer, I think, has to be a resounding no. Okay, let's get back to Judas again. So, so Jesus, he, he perceives that this demonic possession has taken place, right? They're sitting around the table. Satan enters into Judas's heart. And Jesus, when he realizes this has happened, he, he says to Judas, do whatever it is you're going to do. And, and the disciples, other than perhaps John and Peter, they don't really know exactly what this means. And the text even tells us that they think that Jesus might be telling him because he has the money bag to go out and like buy groceries for the Passover feast or maybe go and give alms to the poor because that's the kind of thing that you did around the Passover time, you know. So Judas, you're the money guy, go, go do the alms for us. And then the text says that, that Judas, he makes his exit. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He, he leaves. And then the text tells us that it was night. Why, why would John say that? What importance does that have? Well, this is one of the benefits, friends, of doing expositional preaching where we just sort of walk through an entire book of the Bible. When, when you do that, you see the main themes that sort of run throughout the entire book. And one of the main themes that we've been seeing all throughout John's gospel is light and dark. Light represents life and creation and goodness, and darkness represents death, destruction, and chaos. Light represents Christ. Darkness represents the world. And so as Satan enters into Judas's heart, he goes back out into the world and permanently leaves the light and life of Jesus behind. Friends, some of you may be on the verge of doing that. I just want to plead with you. Please don't go back out into the world. I know a grown man crying makes us all uncomfortable, but I can't help it. And if you're here and you've never really tasted the world and you've grown up into the church and the world is calling you and tempting you, let me tell you, I've been there. It is dark and death is unpleasant. There is nothing in the world for you other than destruction. Don't go. If you're sitting at the table with Jesus and if he's made his love and his grace available to you, don't go. Don't flee. Don't walk out into the darkness. Maybe you don't have to be at our church. Maybe this isn't the version of the light that you find most enlightening. That's fine. But whatever you do, don't abandon Christ. Because if you abandon Christ, friends, you will spend the rest of your life and then the rest of your eternity in darkness. And as someone who has spent many years, earthly years, in darkness, I have to tell you, I can't even begin to comprehend What an eternity in darkness, separated from the light and life and glory of Christ will be like. It will be terrible. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We will beg and plead with God to please receive us back into his kingdom. And he will say, friend, you had the opportunity. My son, Jesus Christ, came to you with his light. You heard his word. Everyone in this room is without excuse. You cannot say on the last day, if you are plunged into eternal darkness, that you did not hear about the life of Christ, that you did not hear about the light of the gospel. You're hearing it now. And you're hearing it now because God 
loves you. And he is determined to save you from your own sin and folly. And I I hope that you will continue in the light or that you will walk into it for the first time. Point number two, the commandment. Of the many, many holidays on the so-called Christian calendar, yes, I'm beating that dead horse again, there is a, a holiday often celebrated by some Christians called Maundy Thursday. Not Monday Thursday, Maundy Thursday. It's probably the least well-known of all the holidays on the liturgy. You know, everybody knows Easter and, you know, Christmas and Good Friday, but there's Maundy Thursday And it's celebrated on the Thursday of every Easter week to commemorate Jesus giving his disciples a new commandment. Let's read about that for ourselves in chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is one of those uh, head-scratcher teachings of Jesus, and I'll tell you why. Jesus tells his disciples, uh, hey guys, listen, I have a new commandment that I'm going to give to you, and just put yourself in the disciples' shoes there, right? You're like, you know, kind of pumped probably, like Jesus, you're, you're the chosen few, you're the inner circle. Jesus has a new command for the world and you're the, the privileged first 11 to hear it. All right, Jesus, hit us with this new commandment. What do you got? And he says, love one another. Jeez, okay, that's, uh, that's not new. That's actually like the opposite of new. That's a really old commandment. As we saw in our Sunday school class this morning, as Will walked us through Leviticus 19, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is one of the earliest in the Bible. Just listen to what it says. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. So what's going on here? The question that we, we have to ask is, in what way is this new commandment new. And I think the answer has to be in the second half of the commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself, or just as I have loved you, right? Just go back and and look at that verse again. Go back to verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, got that. Just as I have loved you. That second half is what makes it new. Right? Jesus says, the thing that makes the new commandment new is that I'm going to show you exactly how to do it. I, I've been showing you throughout my whole earthly ministry, but specifically when I go to the cross and when I lay down my life for you, when I die for you in love, you will see in that death with pristine clarity exactly what love should look like. And if if you're wondering how I get to the death of Christ as the the example, because it doesn't say it in this text, you you can just see it a little bit later. You can turn over with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, that sounds very similar, right? Love each other as I have loved you. Okay, got it. Then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus is saying that the cross is what makes the new commandment new. The cross, even though it is dark and ugly and in many ways disgusting, it is also simultaneously the most vivid and glorious picture of what it looks like to love one another. Now, the Apostle John, I wonder if, uh, from like a pastor's perspective, I wonder if he must have gotten a question about this often in his ministry, as people maybe read the, the gospel that he wrote, or maybe as they interacted with him after he would teach some truth of the scripture. Because later on in his writing career, he actually explains the, it's new, but it's not new, but it is new, thing in one of his letters. And this is what he says in, in 1 John chapter 2. Actually, just turn there with me. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 7 and 8. Uh Uh-oh, maybe it's in 2 John. Nope. Hey, hey now. Is it First John 2 7? All right. Well, you guys got it. I got it too. Let's go. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment. Is that what you have in yours? Okay, good. Uh, beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So John comes along and he's like, I know this could be confusing. It's a new commandment, but it's kind of old, but it's really made new in Jesus. Okay. All right. Now let's get practical with this. What does it look like for us to love one another like Jesus has loved us? It's important that we ask this at a very practical level because obviously you can't die on the cross for me. So when Jesus says, you must love one another as I have loved you, and he's speaking about his death on the cross, we know I can't, even as your pastor, go and die for your sins. You can't die for my sins. So what has to be going on here is that there's some metaphorical sense in which the way that we love each other sacrificially pictures the love of Christ on the cross, his death on the cross. So what does that look like practically to lay down your life in love for one another? So last week uh, in, our, in our sermon on humble service, I commended the elders to you. I said, the elders and the deacons, I said, if you want to know what humble service looks like, just look at the elders. And I'm going to do the exact same application again this week. And, and you may be thinking, well, Sean, are you just being lazy? You know, can't think of a different application 
No, actually. I arrived at this application after a, a, a long period of trying to find something unique to say. And I, I said, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't just be concerned with saying something unique. I should really just point out the thing that I most want to point out, which is the elders should be leading from the front and laying down their lives in love, right? And I think that they are, right? You know, sometimes when you're on the outside of leadership looking in, when you're on the outside of authority looking in, you might be tempted to believe, uh, (laughs) it's a huge lie, that being in leadership is just about exercising authority, right? You, You couldn't be more wrong. To be a shepherd an elder, a pastor, they all three mean the same thing. To be a pastor in Christ's church, yes, you do exercise authority, but you have the authority, first and foremost, to die to self and to die to serve others, to lay down your life for the sheep. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life. He dies for the sheep. A wolf comes along. A wolf is going to kill the sheep. The the shepherd says, no, 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 the sheep aren't going to die. If I have to, I'll die for you. And then all shepherds in Christ's church look at Jesus' perfect example and say, this is what we have to do as well. Now, of course, the examples of sacrificial love in our church amongst the members could be multiplied ad nauseum. I could point out the Berger family and the way that they've managed to love sacrificially through extremely trying health circumstances. And, uh, And so I will. Thank you for, for role modeling what it looks like to die to self in Catherine's case, even in some senses where it feels like your self may be dying. I mean, it's really incredible, sister. I can think about the example of Susanna Farmer for like the first four years she was at this church just pouring herself out for the gospel kids ministry. And I can think about Britain doing the same thing with the treasury and Mike Phillips just constantly, quietly serving our church as a treasurer, which is not an easy job. And if you know anything about his regular job, you know that his regular job is not an easy job. But because he loves this body, he takes on another not easy job to serve us. I could just go on and on. The examples of Spencer and Tim and their diaconal service, Michael Waugh and his constant quiet service, even Greg Miller. If you've ever had a car or a home issue and Greg has showed up in your house, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, that's just kind of the thing that he does. So I want to hold up all these examples from the membership and highlight them, but I want to begin by highlighting the elders because they should be the ones setting the tone for that. Our church will never grow in our ability to love one another sacrificially if those who lead the church aren't showing us exactly what that is supposed to look like. So, If you were to come up to me after service and say, Sean, I want to know what does it look like to love people the way that Jesus says we're supposed to, I would just say like, go follow Will Stevenson around for a week and you'll understand. Or I might say, go read our church covenant. Our church covenant is a summary of scripture's teachings about how we should love one another in the church. But maybe you're like, oh, church covenant, that's not in the Bible. Fine, just go read the Bible. Just go read the 59 one another commands in the New Testament. If you haven't felt like a surge of conviction about how badly you're failing as a Christian lately, just go do that. You'll feel bad for like a month, right? All these one another commands right there in the text. If you're a visitor here this morning and you're like, man, I'm really intrigued by this idea of of Christian love, sacrificial love. I've heard about it, but I've never seen it. What does it look like? 
I would just want to tell you that you're probably never going to be able to see it on the outside of the church. You're never going to be able to see this kind of Christian love if you're just sort of hopping around from church to church. Because true love is always bound up with commitment. You tell a young woman who says, I want the love of a great man, but I don't want to marry a man. Well, you're never really going to be able to experience them because the true love between a man and a woman, the, the deepest kind of love that I'm talking about here, it's always bound up with commitment. Right? I would say the same thing to a man. Right? It's bound up in commitment. So if you want to experience this deep, deep love of Jesus in the church, you actually have to commit yourself to a church. You're never going to find a, a perfect church, of course. But you should look for a church that's aspiring towards these things and then get in the mix and breathe in that atmosphere for yourself. This is a tall task, isn't it? Loving one another like Jesus has loved us. It's impossible. Sometimes you'll hear people say, God will never command you to do something that you can't do. Friends, that's all God ever does, is command us to do things that in our flesh we are utterly incapable of doing. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. All right. <clears throat> love one another, even as Christ has loved us. How do we do that? Man. Before we talk about how we do that, I just want to further deepen your despair. Because I think it's only when our despair is sufficiently high that we can understand our great hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're told about what the love of Christ is like. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Ugh. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So how, how are you doing with that? Does, does that sound like you? Let's do a little experiment. We'll run a little case study. And so that I don't pick on anyone in the congregation, I'll just use myself as the guinea pig, the example here, okay? Going back to 1 Corinthians 13. <clears throat> Sean is patient and kind. Sean does not envy or boast. Sean is not arrogant or rude. Sean does not insist on his own way. Sean is not irritable or resentful. Sean does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Sean rejoices with the truth. Sean bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I'm surprised that as I've read through that list, like my family isn't just sitting there laughing uh, because they know me best, right? Sean is not irritable. Sean does not insist on his own way. She's like, no, that's all. <laughs> it's bad, folks. I would encourage you to just maybe this afternoon go back and plug your own name in as you read through 1 Corinthians 13. You see, friends, none of us can actually perfectly love one another with the love of Christ. Well, so then what hope do we have? Why does Jesus tell us to do it if we can't do it? Well, it's here that we just have to come back and once again rehearse the ABCs of the gospel, the ABCs of the Christian life which tell us that our hope to walk in obedience to any of God's commands cannot be found in us. 
the strength that we need to be able to obey the commands of God have to be found in God and the power that he supplies for us and our obedience. You see, another thing that makes the new commandment new is the source of power that we now have to obey it. All who have been saved by Christ have received the Spirit of Christ, which empowers us to obey the commands of Christ, to love like Christ. Romans 5.5 5 says it like this. So despair, high, now our hope should be skyrocketing as we listen to this verse. God's love, which is most clearly seen at the cross, God's gospel love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What hope is there in your flesh? None. What hope is there because of the Spirit of God? An abundance, great hope, tremendous hope. God the Father pours His perfect love, the love of God the Son, into our hearts through God the Spirit, which then empowers us to let that love flow freely from our lives. 1 John 4.19 says it like this, and we sang about it this morning. We love because he first loved us. Do you remember what the first fruit of the Spirit is? It's significant that it's the first one. Usually the, the first one in a list is usually the most prominent one. It's love. If the Holy Spirit truly lives in us and has taken root in our hearts, we will always grow in our ability to love others like Christ. Now, there's one more thing for us to see here. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't stop after merely telling the disciples to love one another. To the contrary, he goes on in verse 35 to say that when they do love one another, the world will know that they belong to him. Go back to John 13 so we can read that together. <coughs> verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me explain how, how this works, okay? Letting the world know through our love. How does this work? We as Christians, the church, we are a holy people. Holy doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we're holier than thou. It just means that we're set apart. It means that we've been sanctified by Christ, okay? For God's special purposes, now, what I want you to see here, and this is very important, is that our love for one another is not the thing that makes us holy. Our love for one another is not the thing that makes us holy. God's love for us is what makes us holy. Then, when that vertical love that we've received from God disperses out uh, horizontally from us to one another, that reveals our holiness to the watching world. And when I think about uh, loving one another as, as a holy witness to the watching world, I just cannot help but think about the last few years of, of turmoil in the American church, right? I mean, it was pretty bad. The, the, the pandemic was really rough on the American church. The election cycle, the, the protests, I mean, we were just tearing each other apart, and in some ways, we still are. Now listen, some of the infighting that took place during that time was good and necessary, 
But much of it wasn't. Much of it did damage to the witness of the church. Now, I can't speak to all of evangelicalism. I can't speak to all of the American church. All I can tell you is that in our church, we were jealous, desperately jealous, to protect our witness of holy love to one another. Why? So that we could protect our witness to the watching world, right? We were jealous to show the watching world that even when the world is on fire, especially when the world is on fire, we will still love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. You think this about masks and vaccines, I think this about masks and vaccines, and yet here we are, still loving one another and serving one another and worshiping one another in the local church. You feel this way about Trump and Biden, and I feel this way, and, and yet here we are, not compromising on the gospel truth, but holding our convictions in a way that still allows us to love one another like Christ has loved us. You feel this way about race relations in America, and you think it should be handled like this, and I feel this is how I assess the history of racism in America, and I think it should be handled like that. There's a degree of difference, and yet here we sit today, still loving one another. You know, it didn't have to go like this. Our church could have splintered. Our, our church could have torn apart. I can just tell you story after story. Even a pastor's who today tell me that their church is still reeling from what has happened over the last two and a half years. And I just, I just want to take a moment to rejoice that God's grace sustained our holy love for one another, even through the fiercest drought and storm. I mean, so much so that as I've talked to different members and even some of our elders about this, they say like, I, like even this week I was previewing the sermon with Will and and he was like, you know, I think the point that you're making is valid, but I don't know if it's going to land with our people because we didn't really feel it as much as other churches felt it. And uh, that's not because of us. That's just because God was really kind to us. And so I want to just take a moment to celebrate his grace. Now, I want to I end on, uh, it's, it's the end of this point, but it's also the end of the sermon. I, I want to end with a little bit of corporate self-assessment, honest self-assessment. For the members of 6th Avenue, when you think about our church, what quality or attribute do you think most accurately and comprehensively defines our congregation before the eyes of the watching world? Are we most obviously defined by our long sermons? And long prayers, which, you know, add up to long services? Are we most defined by our love of doctrine, which is good and necessary? Are we most defined by being word-centered? Ugh, we, there's no other option. We have to be word-centered. Are we most defined by being confessional in a uniquely baptistic way? Are we most defined by being the Nine Marks Church? None of these things is wrong or bad, but they should all be pointing towards the deeper thing that should be defining us, that should be characterizing us, which is our love for God and our love for one another. So it's my prayer that as, as the world looks in on what's happening at this church, and by the way, it does, the way we conduct ourselves in the community 
the way we worship, it's all an example to the watching world. My prayer is that as the, as the world watches us, that what, what will loom largest in their minds is our love for one another. So if we're doing an honest self-assessment, let me lead from the front with honesty. I, I don't know that we're there yet. My fear is that there are other things that may loom larger in the minds of those on the outside looking in. Now, some of that we can't avoid, right? People are just going to misunderstand and so on and so forth. But insofar as we can control this, I'm just concerned that love isn't the foremost thing. But it can be. We can work on it. We can aim for that. We can get there. But we can only do that if we understand that we still have a lot of work to do. So I just want to end by, by exhorting you to do the work, to not just talk a good game about love, but to actually be about love. I mean, here's what I mean. Let me just give you a very practical example. I would like for you over the next week to just think about someone in the church that you are least likely to engage with, least likely to have a conversation with, least likely to have a meal with, and then go and find some way to love them. Have a phone call with them. Have them over for dinner. Encourage them. Challenge them. I don't know. Whatever love looks like in that situation. I just want to encourage you to actually take action in light of what we've seen here today and how important it is for our witness. Friends, it's easy to say that we love one another. Anyone can do it. Anyone can say it. But it's another thing to actually be able to lay down your life and to prove it with your actions. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, the perfect note to end on. Paul tells us, and God tells us through Paul, that we must walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Amen? All right, can I have those who are going to be baptized come in?